This morning we are, we're starting our Advent series, but we're still in Luke, which is good news if you were like, what, we just started back into our Luke series? How, are, what are we going to do for Advent? Are we going to keep going? And the, the truth is that when we started our Luke series, I looked ahead, and I knew Christmas was coming, and I thought, we should start not with chapter 1 and do Christmas in March, which is when we started, but we started in later. And so now we can come back and do Christmas at Christmas. Yes, thank you. I, I knew someone would call me brilliant for doing that. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> so um, Luke, for everyone, we're still in it, and we're back. We're moving back to Luke chapter 1, so that's where we'll be. And um, the Advent season, which is really just means anticipation, we're looking, we're preparing our hearts, and we do that because Christmas is an incredible Christian holiday, and so is Easter, and so both of those really special holidays, we take time before they come to prepare our hearts so that we can fully engage and fully uh, um, understand what God wants to do in our hearts during this season. Um, this is the story of the Incarnation. So that means when God took on flesh and became a human, we call it the nativity is another word we put on it, or the Christmas story. I once had a youth, and when I said, I'm going to tell the Christmas story, they were like, you're going to tell the Grinch? I was like, no, no, that's not the Christmas story. There's a, a different one. And it's one for the ages. If you've never heard it, there are angelic visits, there are murderous plots, there are sex scandals, there's international travel, there are wealthy kings, there are lowly shepherds, there are camels, and there are sheep. Meh. You just wanted to do that sound effect. And if it was your first Bible story that you ever heard, you would be blown away. You'd be shocked at what kind of story this is that, that's full of mystery and full of miracle. And that's really the story. When, when we look at Luke's account of it, we see Luke all over. We see that same attention to detail. We see that same exposure that everyone in this story is. There's so many regular, ordinary people in this story. We'd be expecting more, but that's who's in the story. That's who's there. And we'll have to take them out of our nativity scene. If you've got one, we've got a glass one where we take out the characters really carefully, put them on the mantle. And when we first did that, the kids were like, I want to play with them. Can I carry baby Jesus around? And we're like, no, 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 no. Don't touch them. They'll break. They're very special. And so for us, as we engage with the story, we're going to have to take them out of that nativity and we're going to have to unwrap them and realize that they're regular, ordinary people. This story has old people in it. Old, wrinkled people. Barren. That's the story. And there's babies. Helpless babies. Naked babies in this story. And there's both priests and carpenters who get angelically rebuked. And there are doubters, and there are believers, and there are singers, and there are mutes. That's the story. It's beautiful. Let's read together uh, as God works his miraculous story into all these regular ordinary people. Luke chapter 1 verses uh, 5 to 26, if you have your Bible, which I'd encourage you to bring your Bible because then you get to read um, all this stuff in your own Bible. When you go home, it will be there. Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 26. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. Now, before I go on, I just want to preface it with this. This first part, this 
first reading is about the birth of John the Baptist. Just so in case you're not sure what I, where I started, what I'm reading about. It's the birth of John the Baptist, who was the, the one coming to foretell about Jesus. And so that's the, that's the part. So there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest for God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter to the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him into the, in, in the spirit and the power of Elijah and to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man. Maybe talk like that. And my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. And they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and, he, and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Whoo! What a story. Oh, it just gets better and better, you guys. I'd encourage you, read ahead on this story. I know it doesn't spoil it, so don't worry. You read ahead and you just enjoy it more. It's really, it's incredible. What, a, what an incredible story. Our big idea this morning is this. Because of who God is, we are never without hope. Because of who God is, we are never without hope. Our hope is in a God who sees. A God who sees. We are a culture that doesn't like to wait. I don't know if you know this, but I've seen it. I know it because uh, not that long ago, there was, there's a, uh, an app, a Starbucks app that came out. And do you know that at Starbucks now, you don't even have to wait in line. You don't even have to pay. What you do is you, on the way... You go onto your app and you order something and you pay for it and then you walk into Starbucks and you grab your thing and you walk back out. You can do this. You can do this and not wait at all. Actually, and on your phone there, I'm sure maybe you know this, or no, I don't know if you know this, but there is instant everything. 
There's instant messaging. There's instant email. There's instant TV. There's instant maps. There's instant info and news and access and global positioning. If you want to know exactly where you are in the world, global positioning. We have instant money. It's called credit. I know if you know this. You want money right now? Just go, just get some credit. Use your credit card. Money right now. All of this we have because we are a people and a culture who don't like to wait. And our story comes out of waiting. It comes out of a people who had waited for 400 years. That's a long time. (laughs) Nukes. Luke's narrative begins out of this abyss between the Old Testament and the New Testament. When the the prophecies had ended and the quiet had descended and the waiting had stretched on and on, generation after generation, waiting for the promise of salvation. Waiting and waiting. Isaiah 8 verse 17 says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. And out of the darkness and the quiet comes this old priest walking into the temple with his lighter to light the the incense, the prayer incense. It reminds me of another kind of waiting, another kind of a guy who got visited and ambushed. Different guy. It's the story of Moses. If you've been here for very long, you'll know. I talk about this story a lot. I hope you know this story if you've been here. Because this is another important story in the Bible that uh, we can relate a lot of things forward and backward to. And the story is that the people of Israel, they became enslaved in Egypt. And it didn't start out that way, though they went there because they had great favor. And because Joseph, he's the one who worked out the famine so they'd have food. And they got the nice land, the Goshen, for their flocks. And over time, they became slaves. And they began to cry out to God. Now, the interesting thing is Joseph, who was in power with, he's the guy under Pharaoh, he had, before he died, he'd made this prophecy. He said, God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land he promised. God will surely come to your aid. I'm sure at the time they were like, God will come to our aid. Well, what? We've got Goshen. We've got favor with Pharaoh. What do we need aid for? We're doing great. And then years and years go by, and as they go into slavery, slowly and suddenly in slavery, they would realize, oh, that's what he was talking about. God, we need God to set us free because we're enslaved. And then there's this, the story of Moses, and he's out, you know, with his sheep. There I get two sheep bleats in one sermon. And he's out there with his sheep, and suddenly there's the burning bush. And I don't know if it's that big. That's a big burning bush. Huge bush. That's like a burning tree. But it was a burning bush, and so, and God speaks to Moses out of the bush, and God calls Moses, and God says, this is holy ground, and he takes off his shoes, and then God says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then God says this. I'd like to read it to you out of um, Exodus chapter 3, because it's almost the same as what the people of Israel, they could have said about them. This is what God says to Moses. He says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to a place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, Jebusites. 
And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses is left there, and he stutters. You know, he's the prince turned murderer who gets called by God to go set them free, and he says, I can't do it, I can't do it. But God sees and hears and knows and waits. And the people of Israel wait and hope. And we wait and hope. And God sees and hears and knows and sometimes he waits. All of my kids at some point have done this and I've shared this probably a lot but usually when they're around two, between two and four um, I'll be sitting there and doing something they'll be like, dad, daddy, daddy. These are when they were little. They're not this little anymore. And uh, so they'll say, daddy, daddy. And I'll be like, yeah, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I'm doing something. And they'll be like, daddy, daddy. And then they get up on my lap and they turn my face. They touch my face and they turn it to look at them in the face. And I'll be like, yes. And like, daddy, da 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 And I'll be like, yeah, yeah. And they grab my face. Now look at me, dad. Look at me. It's usually my younger kids in the big family. They're like, I need daddy to look at me. <laughs> and I think sometimes we feel like this. We feel like those kids, like, like we got to go and somehow God is distracted and we're going to get his attention and we don't know if he's going he's gonna to look at us. He's going to turn his face to us, but we want that. We need that. And sometimes it feels like, God, what are you doing? Are you distracted? Do you know what's going on with me? This is the difference between God in Genesis 1 and Yahweh, or the Lord God, in Genesis 2. God, who is creator of the world, who is omnipotent, all-powerful, and omniscient, he knows everything, and he's everywhere. He, he is all of this. And that kind of God, who is all-powerful and all-knowing and everywhere, can sometimes seem distant when you're going through suffering or pain. You're like, I know he sees me, but does he really see me? And God in Genesis 2 is called the Lord God, and it's the, word, the name Yahweh. And it's this very personal, intimate God who will stand with people, who will be present with people, who will hear them and see them. A God who's so close you could turn his face to look in your face. People in the Psalms say things like this. Psalm 35 says, uh, 23, 22 and 23 says this. You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself from my vindication, from my cause, my God and my Lord. Or Psalm 13, 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? It's the word of someone saying, God, I... I need you to look at me. I need to know you see me. Maybe this is comforting to you, these words, because maybe you've said words like this to God before. Maybe it was when you or someone close to you was diagnosed with a disease. Maybe it was when you found out your marriage was collapsing. Or maybe it was when someone mistreated you or misled you or when you were abused or you experienced deep and painful suffering. Maybe you were stolen from or wronged. 
Or for them, maybe it was when menopause hit and they realized they would never have the children they longed for. And Zechariah and Elizabeth were stand-up people. If anyone deserved this, they did. They were faithful, believers. They were moral. They were, the word is blameless. So not perfect, but blameless, righteous people. And they waited beyond hope. Now with everyone in their culture looking at them and saying, uh, judging them, they had to experience this pain. And now, past the point. Now it's too late. They're really too old. It's now impossible for them. And Israel had waited in the same way now well beyond the time. 400 years. Salvation and redemption and rescue and hope. Could they still hang on to the shred of hope? Psalm 33:18 says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. And verse 5 I love says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. The psalmist says, I don't know, but I'm going to trust in your love because I know it doesn't change. Through the ages, your love is there. And so I'm going to hold on to it, and I'm going to trust, even though it's quiet, even though it doesn't feel like you see me, I'm going to hold on, and I'm going to trust because God doesn't always act in our timing. And then we really are forced to trust. That's my second point, trust. We have to trust that God is able. We hope in the fact that we have a God who sees, and we trust in a God who is able. Many years ago, Lauren and I, we, were in a, we went to our pastor and spouse's retreat, and their door prize, the big door prize everyone was waiting for was a, a it was two nights in Whistler at the Fairmont was the big door prize. So everyone was like, had their tickets and they were giving away stuff to pastors. It was great. And so we were waiting, waiting. Everyone stayed right to the end. They waited for the last day for that big prize. And then finally, actually, it was Gord Fleming. So our national, Canadian national director over C2C, which is our church planning network at the time, he was the guy giving out the prizes. And so he was making people do all these silly things. And then he pulled out this one and he said, here it is. And he read out the number and guess whose ticket it was? Lauren's. And I was like, yes, yes, I love you. I love you. And she went up to the front and she was like, okay. And then he made her sing this love song, which she did great. She was very courageous. He was like, sing a love song to your husband. Everyone's like, who? She did it and we won. And you know what? It was funny because we got these tickets and was like, we won the big prize. And people were like, oh, you're so lucky. Oh, yeah, you're so fortunate. Oh, that's so awesome. And over time, I started thinking about that. We say those things a lot, don't we? Oh, you're so lucky. You're so fortunate. We have these words that creep into our vocabulary about chance and coincidence and luck and fate. And they kind of rule our thinking a bit. At least they're in our speech. And these things, these ideas, I think they assault the character of a sovereign God. A God who is in control of everything. This is what it says in verse 8 and 9. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. This is one of the weirdest things in the Bible, I'm going to be honest with you. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of weird stuff, too. But this is one I've always I've been like, what? 
draw, do you know what drawing lots is? It's basically like putting names in a hat, and you spin it around, and you pull out the name. And they say, God chose this name. Who's going to be on? Zechariah. God wants Zechariah to be on. <laughs> Can you imagine this? this is, they decided big things in the Bible. There's a part in the Old Testament where they're like, something's going wrong in our nation. Whose fault is it? Let's find out who's sin. And they start drawing names. Who is it? Who is it? Okay, it's that family. That, it's Achan. Achan, what did you do wrong? I'm like, what did he do wrong? What did that? We could find a lot of people. And yet it was Achan. Or Jonah's on the boat. And whose fault is the storm that's killing us? Jonah, what did you do? You want us to throw you overboard? Okay, let's do that. Or in the New Testament, they're choosing elders this way. <laughs> let's put some names in ahead. Who's going to be our elder? Okay, yeah, you're the guy. You're the one. It's incredible. The fact that Zechariah's name is drawn out of some 20,000 priests is not chance. It's God's design. He gets that privilege once ever. And this is his time. It's hard to trust if you don't believe God is really in control. It's hard to trust if you don't believe that very hard. The angel says, your prayers have been heard. Zechariah is lighting this incense, and he gets ambushed. He's, he's calling people to prayer, and he's lighting the incense. He's, he's making prayers like we do prayers of the people. One person is interceding for the group. This is what he's doing, too. The prayer people are out there, and they're praying with him, but he's going in to make prayers. And as he goes in to make prayers, he's praying for a child, and he's praying for a deliverer. And the angel says, ding, 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 you got it. It's here. Romans 12, 12 says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And I wonder if there's any more beautiful words than your prayer has been heard. These prayer warriors, people who pray for years for things, and they bring it before the Lord and bring it before the Lord. And then God says, your prayer has been heard. In John 11, Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, and the one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And I think as, as Zechariah brings his prayers, as, as Martha stands there and looks at Jesus, her brother is in the tomb dead. And this is Jesus' answer to her when she says, Why weren't you here? Why didn't you come? And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Do you believe I can do anything? The fact that something is impossible isn't a no. That doesn't mean it's a no. It just means that now no one else can claim it. No one else can say, oh, yeah, that was you, Jonathan. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. I'd be like, that was impossible. That was God. So now it's left fully and totally up to him, some of these things. When Lazarus is in the tomb, Jesus says, okay, now it's time for God to be glorified. And for Zechariah, now it's time for God to be glorified. The problem with expectation is we can be disappointed. That's the problem. When I say, yeah, let's hope. Come on, guys, let's grab hold of hope. We say, uh, I've expected things before and been disappointed. And I've tried to trust God before, but trust, the problem with trust is you give someone else the control. Someone else is going to do something. And when you do that with God, you say, okay, God, I'm going to give you that. And then 
it's left up to God. What if he doesn't do it right away? What if he doesn't do it when I want him to? And in all the years of waiting and tears and unanswered prayer, Zechariah is blown away. He's totally shocked when the answer comes. He's going in there. God, give me a child. You've got a child. We're going to give you a child. What? What? Seriously? What? I can't believe this. Is this true? Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. He's totally blown away. I love the story of, I don't know if it's a true story or not, but I love it. It's the story of Hudson Taylor. I'm sure he's got lots of stories about him, but it's, the, and I've told it before. It's the story, he's traveling to China and he's on the big ship. Picture of the ship. We've got a big picture of a ship. <laughs> there it is. And he's traveling on a ship like this with big sails. And so they sail in and as they travel through these islands and there's danger with cannibals and, you know, they're drifting, that the, the wind dies. And so there's no wind, and so they lower the sail, and they're waiting for the wind, and, you know, they're waiting and waiting, and it gets more and more dangerous. And so finally, the captain goes down to Hudson Taylor's room, and he bangs on the door, and he says, "Will we know you're a man of God. Will you pray that God would send wind so we can get out of danger? And Hudson Taylor says, I will pray if you lower the sails and prepare them for the wind. And the captain says, I'm not going to do that. Lower the sails in a dead calm? I'm going to be the laughing stock of my crew. They're all going to, no one's going to, we can't do that. And Hudson Taylor says, well, then I'm not going to pray. I'll pray when you lower the sails. And the captain finally is like, okay, fine, fine. Like, we're desperate. And so they go away, and a few minutes later, you come back, knock on the door. They're like, are you still praying in there? And he's like, yep, I'm still praying. And they're like, okay, we'll stop. We've got too much wind. More than we can manage with the sails. I love that story because the question comes when, that, when the angel comes to, to answer your prayer. Is the angel going to find sail set to the wind, ready to receive it? Or you drifting in despair toward cannibal islands? I think the cannibal islands are the despair. How is it going to find you? And when's the last time you were a laughingstock? When's the last time you took a step and said, I could be a laughingstock, but I'm going to obey, and I'm going to set my sails in hope, trusting that God will meet me. Some of us have reduced our prayer life to only the very doable. I think some of us are worried about God's reputation. Mm, I want to ask for too big because, you know, I don't want him to look bad. So we ask for just the doable. What's kind of already happening? Oh, oh, God met that answer. Okay, oh, yeah, no, this thing. And we're worried about the big ones. We don't want to ask for those. While we were at our summit, so last week we went to this church planning summit, the speaker really challenged us. In their church, they're praying for the sick to be healed. They're praying for people to come to salvation. They're praying for people who, are, who have baggage and are feeling trapped and enslaved that they would be set free. And so they're praying for these things, and they've started to see people get healed. They saw, they've seen lame people walk. People who couldn't walk, walk. People who were blind, see. I'm listening to this guy. I'm like, this is crazy. Who is this guy? He must be, like, from Bethel, right? From the Toronto Blessing or somewhere. Who's this guy? He's from the Christian Missionary Alliance. That's where he's from. And what he's doing is he's looking, and he's saying, God wants to do stuff, and we need to step into it with him because he's looking for people who will step in and say, I will obey, 
He told us this story about feeling like he's supposed to pray for his neighbor who's sick. Because they don't want to see just in the church. They want to see it in the community, too. So he goes over to his neighbor who's, like, bent over. He's got this bad back. And he says, you know, can I pray for you? And they end up in the guy's garage. And he's like, can I pray for you? And the guy says, okay, yeah, thanks. And he starts going. And he's like, no, can I pray for you right now? The guy's like, uh, okay. And this guy's been really resistant to the gospel and to knowing this guy's a pastor. And so he's like, oh, okay, okay. And so he prays for him. And then he's like, so do you feel better? And the guy's like, nope, don't feel anything. That's when I would be like, okay, thanks, great. I'm sure the Lord will bless you. Just going back to my house. This guy says, can I pray for you again? I'm like, oh my goodness, you didn't say that. He says, yeah, can I pray for you again? The guy's like, uh, I don't know. He's like, no, I think, you know, let's pray again. He's like, uh, okay. So they pray again. And he's like, do you feel anything now? And the guy's like, well, I feel warm. Actually, I feel warm. But like, I still, I'm still hurting. I'd be like, okay, thanks, great. See you. Warmth is good. Warmth is good. He's like, can I pray for you again? And the guy's like, oh, I really don't know. And he's like, well, you're feeling warm. What would you, you know, can I pray for you? And the guy's like, okay, by this time, the guy's wife is in the garage being like, what is going on here? He prays for him again. And the guy, a few hours later, is mowing the lawn, running around. Hey, look at this. Like a laughing stock. Sails set to the wind. Am I willing to do that? Are you willing to do that? We've forgotten the God who deals in the impossible. And my last point is to believe that we have a God who will act, who has acted and who will act. We believe. We hope. We trust and we believe. You know, sometimes I feel bad for Zechariah. I read this story and I read it. I grew up in the church, so I read this story as a kid. And I always felt kind of bad for Zechariah. I was like, here's this old guy who just wants some kids. And then suddenly finds out he's going to be the old daddy on the playground. And he's supposed to just take this all in stride. I mean, this is a big thing. This poor guy, he just wants some confirmation. Instead, boop, he gets a mute button. Like, is that really fair? I don't know. It just uh, it seems like a lot. And the question, like, is a, it's a common question. People say, yes, but how will I know? God says, well, I'm going to do this. They say, how, well, how will I know you're going to do that? Gideon, in the Old Testament, he's like, oh, I need some dreams, and I need this fleece, I this thing to turn wet and to turn dry, and he's got all these things. Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples, says, I don't, I'm not going to believe that he's raised from the dead until I can touch his hands. And Zechariah gets mute? There's a beautiful thing about, about belief. And when I think about certain people in the Bible, I think about Abraham. I used to wonder, why is Abraham so special? Why does Abraham get the, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Right? Did you ever wonder this? Maybe you've heard that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I'd look in the Bible and I'd say, well, Noah was before Abraham. Noah built a boat. What did Abraham ever do? He just kind of walked around. Went from one place to another? Why is he special? And then I read the story in Genesis chapter 15. God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And Abraham says back to God, what for? You going to bless me? I don't have any kids. It's just going to go to my servants when I die. I'm good. I don't need any more. Because I don't have anywhere to, there's no legacy for me. And God says, no, no, Abraham, I'm going to give you children like the stars. And this is what it says in verse 6. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He didn't build a boat. 
He didn't build a monument. He didn't go do some amazing thing. What did he do? He believed God when God spoke. When God said, this is what I'm going to do, Abraham said, okay, I believe you. It's like children do that. Children have that kind of faith. And when Jesus says, we need to be like children, I think it's especially in this area where you say to children something and they say, okay, yes, I believe you're going to do that. Um, A year or so after my surgery, so if you've been here for very long, you'll know I've had double hip replacement surgery from years of arthritis in my two hips. So between 14 and 26, I became crippled. And I had surgery, set me free, yeah. And three months, I was totally, totally well. The surgeon said, you've recovered 100%, super awesome. And it was like new. And so I was bounding around. It was so awesome, pain-free. And a year or so after my surgery, Maddie was in the kitchen, and Lauren was out. And so I was getting breakfast ready for her, and I was sitting down and eating with her. And then I got up, and I suddenly couldn't walk. I couldn't put any pain on my one side. And so I took the chair and I actually limped across the kitchen. I was in so much pain and I was terrified because I was still working through like, is this, was this surgery good? Did it take? Am I going to be okay? And so I limped across and Maddie's like, Daddy, what are you doing? I was like, okay. And I limped back over and I explained to her, I, I, my hip's hurting. I, you know, I don't know what's wrong. And she said, well, can I pray for you? I was like, okay, yeah, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. And so she did a simple four-year-old prayer. Jesus, would you please heal my daddy? Amen. And I was like, great. And then she says, it's all better now. And I was like, okay, well, you know. And I'm about to explain how God doesn't always heal every time you pray. Sometimes it takes a long time. Sometimes it doesn't happen when you think it's going to. And as this was about rising in my mouth to teach my daughter, I felt God say, don't you even want to see first? Don't you even want to check before you do that? I was like, that's a good thought. Probably God. So I get up, and I walk across the kitchen, and there's no pain. And I run back across the kitchen. I run back, and I run back. I'm like, Maddie, Maddie, I'm healed. And she's like, yeah, I just said that. (laughs) It's like, Dad, what's your problem? And I have shortchanged God so many times because I refuse to believe. And God is good, and God is love, and God is always at work. Every time. It says in Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. I think the problem for Zechariah comes down to the fact that he's looking at a visible angel in the room, speaking audibly to him, appearing to him in the temple, and he's asking this angel for proof. That's the problem. The angel says, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. I think Gabriel's like, you want a sign? What? Let me see. I am the sign, so what other things do I have? Let me check my pockets. Oh, there's this mute thing. Do you want that? (laughs) I got two things. I got, like, I'm here in the press. It's talking to you, an angel, flaming angel, and you need something else. Oh, this is what I got. It's mute. But what it does is, I'm joking about that. What it does is it ties Zechariah to the promise. And now when Zechariah goes home, he's going home to make a baby. 
Sounds crass, doesn't it? But it's true. The promise involves Zechariah, and now he's tied to it. And so he's going to go home, and he's going to do his part. And what happens? She conceives. In their old age, there's a baby. And God spoke, and Gabriel delivered the message, and Zechariah balked. He wasn't sure. And the promise came anyway, because that's what God does. God delivered. But this wasn't just about a baby for Zech and Lizzie. It's about more than that. This is about the beginning of an answer to another cry, a deeper cry, a longer cry, a larger cry, and that was for a deliverer, for a savior. And that's the cry God was answering. Jesus came. God in the flesh, a helpless human baby, lived to be a man, tempted in every way we are, dealt with suffering in the same way we deal with it, the the pressure of humanity, the struggle of humanity. Jesus entered into and experienced, but he didn't cross the line of sin. And then he went to the cross and he was executed, though innocent, to take our sin and to set us free and to buy us back and to give us new life and to connect us to God forever. This is the power. And it raised him from the dead and he lives victorious over sin and death and his rule and reign will endure forever, is the promise. Hebrews 6, 19 to 20 says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. This is the hope. We struggle. We see God move. We don't see God move sometimes. We see him working. Sometimes we don't see him working, but he is working, but we don't always see it. What is the hope we're anchored to in the midst of all the ups and downs, the storms? It's that Jesus came. God in the flesh loved us so much that he came to rescue us, and he dealt a decisive blow to sin and to death on the cross and was raised victorious. This is our hope. Because of God's character, we are never without hope. God sees. God sees. We take hope in a God who's present with us in our difficulty, waiting for the right moment, a compassionate God who's close and personal. Secondly, God is able We trust that God is able to work even in the most impossible situations, bringing redemption and restoration in our lives and through our lives to others. And thirdly, God will act. We believe that God can and will fulfill all his good purposes. And our greatest hope is in his already completed action. The cross. The cross is over there. To save us out of darkness and to bring us into his kingdom to restore and to redeem us and our lives. Our God for whom nothing is impossible. Let's pray. God, I thank you for hope that um, without it, we really have no reason to live. That um, a, a person without hope, a person in despair, is a person who has no reason to live. But we have a reason to live. And God, the more we know about you, the more we see you clearly, the more we understand your character and who you are, the more we know our hope is in you. Lord, we trust you because you are good. And in the midst of our difficult circumstances, the ups and downs of our lives, God, we turn to you and we say, Lord, we want to trust you. We want to believe more. And even when it's hard, I thank you for your grace and your mercy that you come and you're so gentle as you come to us and you lead us on.
And so, God, even this morning, Lord, we just want, we want to turn our hearts to you. We want to lay them before you and say, Lord, um, we are far from perfect. We're far even from blameless. But, God, we want to bring our hearts to you. We want to lift up our requests to you, knowing that you are good and you are loving and that you are always at work. We thank you for your work on the cross to set us free. We pray that we would experience more of your kingdom and more of that freedom today. We love you. Amen.